When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the Scary White People edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion. I am joined as ever by Jordan Weissman of Slate. Hello, Felix. oh my God, what a week it has been. We have the crazy budget from Donald Trump, which we are not going to talk about. We have the Fed hike, which we are not going to talk about. There's so many things we could talk about and we're not going to talk about because it's been a jam-packed week. We are going to talk about this week, uh, Get Out, the movie, which is a fascinating little economic thing, and you're going to want to stick around for that. We are going to talk about my favorite country, which is Iceland. I went there once and it's my favorite country. Um, But most excitingly, we have the one and only Anna Shemansky coming on the show for the first time. Hello. Hello, Anna. Anna is a refugee from various fee structures. Whether she was a hedge fund or a private equity shop, we can maybe describe, (laughs) uh, discuss at some future thing. But Anna knows everything there is to know about debt, basically, and international markets and pretty much everything in the world. And so the fact that Anna is on the show gives us all the excuse we need to talk about the big thing that we haven't talked about basically on the show for a while, which is like, oh, my God, is the euro going to survive? Yes. And it turns out it probably is. It is going to survive. Turns out. Are you, Spoiler no, alert. Okay, so like we need we need to get a feel for your reliability here. Anna. <laughs> did you think that Britain was going to vote to leave the EU? I did not. Did you think that Donald Trump was going to become president? <laughs> I did not. Okay, so on. Given that, do you think that the euro is going to survive? I in fact do. So take <laughs> take do with that what you may. Um, but I, I would argue that the these these 
uh, these issues are slightly different in terms of, you know, an election, you know, a single election versus, say, in the case of France, an election that then be, has to be followed by a constitutional amendment, which then has to be followed by a referendum. OK, so let's rewind here a little bit. The French presidential election is coming up. Yes. One of the the, the way that the French election works is that the top two Winners of the winners first of round. the first round go off the into the second round into a runoff. One of those top two is going to be Marine Le Pen. Yes. Marine Le Pen has promised what? Well, essentially, she's been running on a, you know, pretty uh, familiar at this point, populist, is xenophobic, anti-EU, um, with the idea that she would try to pull uh, France, uh, do a Frexit, pull France out of the EU. This is what she's been campaigning on. Not only out of the EU, but also out of the Europe. Of course. Yeah, yes. correct. And that's the big thing is she right. just wants to go in. And... Because because in a way, like for all the Brexit is absolutely seismic and impossible and, and dreadful, it's possible for the EU to survive it. Yes. Whereas were... France to leave, there's no way it could survive, no. right? That that is that almost certainly true. So this is a, a risk, but as you say, it's not a big risk because number one, it looks like the French are slightly more sensible than the Brits and the Americans and they're not going to vote her in. Yes. I mean And number two, even if she does get voted in, it's not something like Theresa May triggering Article 50, which she can just do unilaterally. Precisely. I mean, if, if you're looking at what's been happening um, as the conservative candidate, Fallon, has, has his campaign because of a number of corruption scandals involving his wife and children and payments and jobs that appear not to have existed, has he's fallen apart and kind of shifted down. He's polling around 20. Um, Emmanuel Macron, who's the um, the kind of centrist, he was the former uh, he was the finance minister under Hollande, but he's, he's much more of a centrist. And he's right now polling neck and neck with Le Pen. So they're, they're around 25, 26, with the socialist Amman coming in much lower. So it'll at, at this point, it's, it's even possible that Macron could technically, um, you know, be the coming first in the first round, which doesn't really matter, but symbolically it matters going. And people are thinking that in the second round at this point, because all of the centrist and left parties will coalesce around Macron, that then he could win by as much as 30 points in the second so, round. OK, so this is fascinating, though, because if it's Macron and Le Pen, basically neither of them represent a traditional yes. political party in France. And this is actually what I think is the most important thing about the French election. I think a lot of people are reading this as an anti-EU push. I actually think it's much more of an anti-establishment because if you look at what happened in the primaries where you had a number of ex-presidents, ex-PMs, nobody, no, they did not get voted in. And who are we getting? Two people from technically who are from new parties. And, and so I think that's actually uh, the, the more significant shift that we're seeing in this election. So... You know, I think there are two ways to think about this issue, right? Like the the big question of whether or not the euro survives in in the context of this election, which is the short term and the long term, right? There's the short term: is Marine Le Pen going to win and take France out of out of the euro, and is France going to, is the euro going to survive this you know close brush with death? And it seems like probably like what you're saying is it's going to you know even if she were to win, it would be difficult to extricate uh, France from the monetary union. But then there's this like longer term issue of just creeping populism. And so I guess like, you know, to what extent can we really be even if Marine Le Pen only gets close this time around, the French populists or even if she were to win but not be able to fully execute her vision, to to what extent 
can the markets calm down? Can, how do you price that in? How do you price in the long-term possibility? Things are slowly well, I falling mean, apart. The, the pricing in thing is a markets question, which we can get to yeah. at some point. Yeah. But the but the more interesting question, just in terms of the economy, of like, will how long can the euro survive? How long can the EU survive? You're absolutely right. There are populists everywhere, including in Italy with this five-star movement. And even without the populists, if we stay on Italy for a second, you know, there is a massive banking crisis in Italy, which everyone is doing their best to ignore. And at some point, it's going to really blow up and cause another major existential risk to the EU. Yeah, both actually in Italy and in Portugal, you have significant, you know, issues with non-performing loans. Which as you can bring in Greece, obviously, as well. But I, I really do think the the point, Jordan, that you were making is significant, though, moving forward to say, what are we seeing with this elections and what does that mean long term in Europe? Because, like, let's look even at the Dutch elections. So so that just happened. Just happened. And what, what was the result? So the the party of the um, uh, another disturbing blonde candidate, uh, Geert Wilders, did not do as well as anticipated. Having said that, still didn't do that poorly. Um, still got 20 seats in 150 seats. The party of uh, Mark Rutte, the, his, his, uh, the uh, Freedom and Democracy Party, they, th- although they lost seats, they still have the most seats. They'll be able to form a coalition government with three other parties, two centrists, then the Greens. That actually Let's just stick on the results for a second. Again, just like in France, it's the traditional parties. Um, there was a reaction against and the big winner was the Greens. Yes. And that's well, that's actually that. And that is an interesting part of the story. But I think, and again, because you, you are getting a pushback towards this anti-EU populism, but you're also seeing you had 28 parties running. And I think that's actually the biggest story. <laughs> Welcome to Belgium. Oh, wait, it's <laughs> exactly. the Netherlands. But yeah. No, this is the biggest story we're seeing is this splintering in, in this fracturing of the European electorate. And what that means is you're going to have weaker governing coalitions moving forward in a Europe. Everyone's going to become Italy. Ex- no, ex- precisely. And part of the reason they wanted to get the electoral law, which they didn't get because of the failed referendum in Italy, was because they want to create stronger coalition governments. And and what and again, what we're seeing here, we're seeing it in Germany, we're seeing it everywhere. It's not necessarily that these these populist parties are going to win or that they're even, you know, that they're going to gain so much power, but they're going to weaken the establishment parties that then makes the possibility of reforms that are still very necessary in Europe. I mean, Europe is still suffering with and and Europe has what you might call it, it, the EU is in itself a weak coalition government. Yeah, precisely, it has twenty eight members and none of them well, have. <laughs> You know, <laughs> still do. Well, it's twenty seven soon, but still it has twenty. Um, but it's yeah, it's very hard to herd those cats at the best of times. And as the individual members members become more fractured, and as you get places like Wallonia, which are sort of sub national regions within um, the EU, having veto power over treaties and stuff like that, the chances of actually being able to achieve anything at the European level seem to have and, gone down to zero. You know, I just coming back to the the economic of this. I mean, I guess the the strategy for Europe for a while has been to kind of muddle through, right? right. Like you're saying, like, if we can just keep going, we'll survive this wave of populism and this, these waves of crisis. But, you know, it, it, instead of muddling through, it seems like it's just getting progressively weaker. The, yeah. the, the, the foundation is eroding further and further over time. And without significant reforms, Eventually, the foundation—it seems like it just has to break. Eventually, and what you're saying about this, this, the fracturing of the the political parties in each individual country—that contributes to that. And I think the foundation, the real foundation of the EU, yeah. was 
the living memory of World War Two. Yes. And as the number of people who remember the war like gets lower and lower and lower, and they become less, you know, important electorally and politically, there's that sort of incredibly important glue, which was keeping, which was not only keeping Europe together, but was like the whole reason for its existence mm-hmm. in the first place, kind of just evaporates. Yeah. No, precisely. And you also have, I think when you're talking about populism and this fracturing, you also have to remember that you have competing populisms because you have the populism of Northern Europe, which tends to be, again, this kind of xenophobic, uh, you know, more more conservative. And then you have the populism of Southern Europe, which is, um, again, if you're talking about Five Star Movement, Syriza, which is much more left wing. And the problem is these are actually directly in competition. And, and and so and as you're saying, as as this memory of why the EU was started to begin with fades and fades, and as these domestic politics and these regional politics become more and more significant, we're not going to see any move towards greater integration. I think that's thrown out the window at this point. Well, you, let's let's well, just finish talking about the whole thing breaking apart with a brief mention of Skoxit. <laughs> <laughs> the best portmanteau. <laughs> Jesus. Um, I mean, it's almost certainly not going to happen because no. you know Theresa May, although she's never, never kind say of, that anymore, Felix. Kind of, <laughs> never, right. kind of dreadful is not as dreadful as David Cameron, and she knows what his biggest mistake was, which was allowing Scotland to have a referendum. But the Scots. I've already started saying we want another referendum yeah. because, you know, and, and so S- Scotland could leave. There's a lot of these independence movements still, which are kind of bubbling up around Catalonia and various other places, and they're not going to go away. No, this is true. Although, interestingly, the um, the separatist movements in the other 27 actually hurts the potential of uh, uh, Scotland actually being allowed to Join the EU. And enjoy, because exactly, because they're not going to, because they have to approve that. And they're not going to approve that when they, you know, if you a country like Spain and Italy aren't, aren't going to do that when they have their own separatist movies that they're dealing with. They're dealing with. So, uh, but it, it does just speak to a greater instability. Again, like I don't think the Scottish, like the, to even hold a second referendum doesn't make any sense to do post uh Brexit, if Theresa May, as she has said, she's not going to allow them to do to even hold a referendum until after they've already left. And that doesn't make any sense. But having said that, again, it just speaks to this larger problem that, as you said, like these problems aren't going away. The problem with Deutsche Bank is not going away. The problem of, you know, NPL's non-performing loans in Italy is not going away. And so as we move forward, you know, you know, Merkel came out, you know, she's very happy with you know, obviously what happened yesterday in the Netherlands. But, you know, what do we see 10, 15 years down the line? Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. On which note, I feel like I need to talk about my um, favorite country, <laughs> which is Iceland. That's, that's, such, that's such bullshit. We know it's Argentina. It's Everyone true. ever listened to- you 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 can't just go throwing around these. You're pretending you love Iceland. Yes. So toying so, with its emotions. So if you're a sovereign debt geek, <laughs> and Anna and I are both sovereign debt geeks. If you're a sovereign debt geek, then Argentina is 
your life. It's what you <laughs> live and breathe for a decade or more, and you like become obsessed with um, various octogenarian jurists in New York. But it's like a lit geek in Ulysses or something. Like, but Iceland is your like sexy mistress off to the side <laughs> Iceland is the place where you have like the, the cool conferences and, and you know it's a bit like Dominica or something it's it's for the it's for the real connoisseurs of exactly yes um, partly <laughs> partly because it was actually weirdly not a sovereign debt crisis it was a, it was the banks which defaulted rather than the sovereign the sovereign basically didn't have any debt yeah but the banks were so much bigger than the fucking sovereign so that, that was, was <laughs> 10 so, times yeah <laughs> the, yeah that was that was one of the more like eye-opening statistics was that the if you took the three big banks in Iceland, all of which went bust, their assets in total were 14 times Icelandic GDP, which sounds completely insane until you realize that Iceland has a population of 330,000 people, which is smaller than Staten Island and, that's exactly and, and what I was gonna... roughly the same as Anchorage. Yes. Jesus. So it's it's a tiny little country which has its own um, currency. And this is a very dangerous situation yeah. to be in because um, you you get what's known as the problem of small open economies. And, you know, if you live in New Zealand, you know this problem because there's also this thing called the carry trade. Mm-hmm. Um, Anna, what's the carry trade? So uh, the carry trade is essentially when you... You borrow money in a country with a lower interest rate, and then you take that money, you invest in a country with a higher interest rate, and then if based on interest rate parity that the 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 currency does not change in the way that in theory it should based on arbitrage rules, you then can make a profit. So the idea is basically if I if I borrow a bunch of dollars at one percent and invest them in Icelandic crowns at ten percent, then I can make the difference of nine percent, and that's a trade which you know, works until it doesn't. But it exactly. also creates this like huge flow of unregulated money into Iceland, which causes assets to rise and a whole bunch of problems to happen. And then when everyone needs their money back, when there's a global financial crisis, there's a huge sucking sound. The entire cu- country collapses, and so what happens? We we have seen this a couple of times. We've seen this in Iceland. We have seen this in Malaysia, that the solution to this problem is this thing called capital controls, which basically says, I'm the government of this country, and I know that the IMF and all of the you know economists think that free flow of capital is the be-all and end-all, but I don't quite understand why, and I'm just going to prevent the, yeah. pr- the free flow of capital. If you want to buy my currency, you can't. If you want to sell my currency, you can't. And and honestly, like China has had capital controls for decades and seems to be doing quite well. Mm-hmm. So, um, Anna, Iceland just got rid of its capital controls, didn't? weren't they working quite well? No, I mean, I, but part of the reason that they, I mean, they they've been slowly kind of um, uh, weaning off, and the biggest reason that they actually re- uh, removed them now was because they finally reached an agreement with a big stock of foreign holders of Krona to, to essentially give them, I believe, a 20% haircut right. um, based on the exchange rate that they were buying. But that really resolved the balance of payments crisis in terms of the amount of foreign reserves that they had in Iceland. So at that point, it it, it become, it's clear that you no longer really need to keep the capital controls. And, and there is a reason that people 
don't like capital controls is because they do tend to keep borrowing rates very high. They do tend to deter investment. And and the local population doesn't like them because it makes it much harder for them to leave the country, Precisely. to spend money abroad. And then the other wonderful, like, weird thing is that Iceland is doing so well right now. Yeah. It grew it grew by seven point six percent or seven point two percent rather in twenty sixteen. It is doing so well that the currency was getting very expensive. Yeah. And when they finally got rid of these capital controls, what happened was a bunch of money that had been wanting to leave the country for a while left, and it weakened the currency a little bit, which the Icelandics liked. Yeah, right. No, because they had actually benefited overall. I mean, part of the, I mean, tourism is obviously the reason that their economy has has improved, but it's also because they, for a while, they had a fairly weak krona, especially in comparison to where they were pre-crisis, where it was I mean, the most still inflated currency. Extremely expensive country to visit, but I guess people just saw all of the headlines about the financial crisis and decided that it must be cheap or something. Because <laughs> well, it was. The, the currency, the currency devalued significantly. Also, they're the Northern but Lights. The, it's you know. still, <laughs> it's, but, you know, so there, there was one of and the whales. best pieces of long-form journalism I've read in a while is this piece on Skift.com, which is this like. Uh, business-to-business travel website where they did this massive deep dive into the tourism explosion in Iceland post-crisis. And it's, like, absolutely astonishing how it's just... Like, I went to Iceland pre-crisis and it was beautiful and there were tourists, but now it's just every single home is an Airbnb, house prices are going through the roof, they're doing all of this construction. They had two million tourists last year, which when you have a country of 330,000 people is a lot of tourists. Yeah, I mean, tourism's becoming a little bit of a social burden, even there. there's like a backlash. But I kind of I want to take a step back on, on this whole issue of capital controls, right? Because Iceland is now kind of an example of how they can work. I think like yeah. I, Iceland is a, is a model of a country that survived the financial crisis and came out like a whole lot better than a lot of the you know the EU nations that are now still flounder or floundering all these years later. And I think you know for a long time, like you said, Felix, economists and like the IMF were like capital controls are this like horrible sin, and you know you always have to have free flow of capital. And now that notion is actually kind of eroding. It's this this whole it's it's a part of this kind of reassessment of what used to be like the neoliberal consensus, right? This idea that money and trade and everything should just be able to flow freely and we shouldn't interfere. And Iceland, Malaysia before it, were sort of cracking that. And I, I think that's it's part of kind of how we're reassessing, people are beginning to reassess a lot of the kind of uh, intellectual, you know, the conventional wisdom from the past 10, 15 years. Yeah. I mean, I do think it's complicated by the fact, I mean, again, Iceland, because you, because you have a country of 330,000 people, $20 billion GDP, they essentially have one industry. What? They have two industries. That's true. They have fishing. Well, no, they have... Well, fishing, <laughs> fishing is in long-term secular decline, but it's still a very important industry. The, the best industry in Iceland is they have basically unlimited, abundant, free energy yes. um, from all of their the volcanoes. Yep. And historically, what that has meant is aluminum smelting, because uh, aluminum is basically what you do when you take a bunch of bauxite and add huge amounts of energy to it. And so aluminum is just, the price of aluminum is basically the price of energy. Um, But the Icelanders have discovered that the other thing they can do with very cheap energy is data farms. Oh, interesting. And so it's now, they have all of these really fat data pipes and there's a bunch of like web hosting and stuff like that, which is going on in Iceland. Because again, that's just all you're consuming is energy, really. Right. But you, you were saying, but yeah, I, so. I guess my point, though, is that it is a very specific example. And in some sense, because it is so small, it almost is like 
an economist's dream of like how you can say like they respond very quickly to stimuli in a way that a more complex economy might not necessarily. So tell me but, about China. So, no, I mean, but, but again, China's also a bit complicated. I mean, they actually recently instituted more capital controls because they've been reserve um, depleting their reserves last year in order to prop up their renminbi, and it they. This year, it appeared that it was they didn't want to continue to keep doing that, so they've now instituted capital controls, and it actually appears to have worked because the renminbi has been supported. So, in again, it does raise the question of orthodox economics. If we have moved beyond that, if we we can see in in some of these EM countries, if you can, in instances, engage in kind of heterodox economic policies, and and I do think there's an argument to be made. I, I just don't know if it's as simple as saying it's one or the other. Well, I, sh- I should say also, it wasn't, you know, the the orthodoxy wasn't always capital controls are bad. Like for the entire middle of the 20th century, like they were mm-hmm. actually thought of as essential. And mm-hmm. a lot of like developed nations like, you know, Britain, France, Germany, like use them to some extent. It's, it's sort of it, they kind of come in and out of vogue. Right. And so things that we think of, I think, for like the last 30 years, sort of after we had like the Washington consensus or whatever, which was sort of the IMF's prescription for how every country, especially emerging countries, should run. Um, we thought of, OK, this is what economics says. This is how to run your country. We're actually learning, oh, well, there are exceptions. And if we look back, it hasn't always been that clear cut. And maybe this stuff is more complicated and it's very uh, it's uh, it's very situational and it's very contingent on different things. And, and the idea, I mean, let's just even the United States. The, the the idea behind abolishing capital controls is that you know a dollar is a dollar wherever it is in the world. And yet Anna and I grew up in this wonderful world of euro bonds. And the reason they're called euro bonds is precisely because a dollar in Europe was not the same as a dollar in the United States. And so I feel like you're absolutely right, Jordan. That we we had this kind of deregulatory consensus, which you can trace from I don't know Margaret Thatcher to Larry Summers, and um, and then you have a bunch of other people around the outside who are a little bit more practical and who are saying, well, you know, in certain circumstances, certain policies should be on the table, and and you can call those policies financial repression if you want, but they also work. Yeah, and and I think also when you compare like what happened in Malaysia with what happened in Korea or like Thailand almost around the same time, it's interesting to see because although all of those economies eventually recovered from the '98 crisis, what we saw in Malaysia was actually kind of less pain for the populace, much and, less. And, and so that because again, of course, if you look at what happened in Iceland compared to what happened in Ireland, you, you it does raise these questions of whether it's it makes sense for the population to suffer so much of the burden that often happens if you don't institute any of these other any of these policies like capital controls and you just engage in and, pure and the Irish famously refused to ever consider such a thing and put a whole bunch of pain on their um Populist. Whereas that, there is one country in the eurozone which has capital well, controls. That's, that's Greece, and that has no, no, oh, well, that's well, Cyprus. They, oh, that too. Doesn't Greece still have? They them, do. Though? Yeah. So uh, it hasn't worked yeah, out. Well, they, they both do. Yeah. yeah. It hasn't worked out well for Greece, but nothing's working out well for Greece for like <laughs> totally that's a whole separate reasons. Separate issue. So, yeah. yeah. So yeah, talking about things which don't work out well. <laughs> 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Jordan. Yeah. Scary endings or scary things. Yeah. <laughs> T- tell me about the very first movie ever to be made by an african-american director which has grossed more than 100 million dollars uh writer and director yeah so like the most interesting story in hollywood right now is get out it's you know you if you're if you're the sort of person who listens to podcasts i would say the probability approaches one that you've heard you've, you've heard about this movie but it's a horror movie that was written directed by jordan peele uh, it was from Key and Peele uh, and uh, comedy, you know, comedy sketch show for a long time on Comedy Central. Um, and it's basically about this, you know, couple, a girl's white and the boyfriend's black and they go and visit the parents who are like nice liberals. No and spoilers. Horror ensues. Horror <laughs> ensues. <laughs> um, and so. And yeah, it's, but the main thing is that yeah. like A, everyone loves it. B, everyone's going to see it. C, it's making lots of money. It's, yeah, and so and this D, is, it costs what five million dollars. And this is it. So it, it, it's a five million dollar film that is you know grossed well over a hundred million uh, worldwide. Um, and it's not the only story sort of like that recently. You've also you know I mean horror films that's sort of almost the model. You 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 shoot them cheap and you hope that something blows up. You release a lot of them into the world and something catches on. But you know recently uh, you know the uh, another story sort of similar to this is Moonlight. Um, Moonlight, you know, one best picture. It was shot on a budget of 1.5 million for production and some amount for marketing afterwards. And it grossed more than 50 million worldwide, uh, 25 million domestically. And so, you know, there's this thing that's happening in Hollywood um, where you have this bifurcation, right? You have the giant blockbusters. You have like the, you know, the Marvel movies, Transformers, things like that that cost God knows how many hundreds of millions to make and they're designed to gross over a billion. And then the other end, you have these microfilms that are sort of the only other thing that can get made right now, it seems. And, you know, sometimes they blow up like this, and that's what makes them profitable. And I kind of wonder if that's actually a really good thing for, like, diversity and story making. If actually the way the, the Hollywood model has evolved at this moment is going to give us more interesting stories about things like you know, race <laughs> packed into horror movies and, you know, gay, black, coming-of-age stories set in Florida, like... Yeah, I mean, and I think it because again, when you're if you're capping your downside, I mean, if, if you're looking for financing and you're essentially saying, you know, you're you're the most you're going to lose is this amount of money, and it's it's very low, that allows you to take more risk in content. Whereas, so okay, let me take the other side of this okay. because um, number one, as you say, horror movies have always been low budget, and the best horror movies have always been low budget. That's like something weirdly unique to horror. There's, there's something about being low budget and you can go back to like Blair Witch has done this and a whole bunch of others have done this that you can just shoot these things for like 10 bucks and it's more scary as a result. Um, this doesn't really read over that easily to other genres, although obviously Moonlight and other movies like that have, have managed it. Um, my big fat Greek wedding, you know, it does happen. Um, but there is a case to be made that outside the horror genre, there is often more need for actual budget. And one of the, the, the other big 
Oscar movie this year was La La Land. Um, La La Land was the second movie from the guy who made Whiplash. Whiplash was a Blumhouse production. Blumhouse is the production company which made um, Get Out yeah. Get Out, and Split and has this business model where it basically doesn't pay more than $5 million to make a movie um, and thereby caps its downside and so forth. What's fascinating to me is that Jason Blum, the guy who runs Blumhouse, was desperate to produce La La Land. La La Land had like a $30 million budget. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what you invariably see in Hollywood is that no matter how much money you make on low-budget um, horror movies, which the Weinsteins also famously did, you wind up taking all of that money and spending it on like prestige movies, which cost 10 times as much. And it will always go that way. But he he, he still managed to, in the end, he, he is still stuck to his sort of self-imposed rules. I mean, so Blumhouse has, it will not, Finance a a original movie for more than five million. If it's a sequel, they'll go up for ten. And um, they but they wanted to do La La Land, and the only reason they didn't do La La Land is because the director went with a different producer. Right, but I mean, I guess saying that like this is what has been the case for a period of time, thus this will always be the case moving forward. It's a questionable because if you look at like the you know way budgeting worked in the '30s in films, where they were just producing you know cheap westerns, cheap dramas, cheap comedies. That was essentially the model, was you just produced a ton of product very cheaply because people went to the movies every day. And that existed for an extensive period of time, and then it shifted. And and so I guess the, the question is, as we move into potentially more you know, different distribution models, if you know, even though obviously marketing costs have been going up, but if potentially marketing costs could begin to start coming down. It, it just raises the question yeah, of our... I, I don't... You see, that's the other big elephant in the room, which no one ever mentions when they talk about the story as marketing costs. Yeah. That, um, in fact, there's zero evidence that marketing costs are going down and that the Blumhouse model is we will make a bunch of movies for $5 million. We will then screen them for our distribution partners. They get a basically up or down vote on whether they want to pick them up or how they want to pick them up. If they want to just put them straight to video and sell some foreign rights and they can probably get their five million back and it's like, you know, no one's taking much in the way of losses, but no one's making a lot of money. Or if they see the movie and they're like, this is a hit, then they will treat it like a blockbuster. And if you get a movie like Get Out or even Moonlight for that matter, they spend the same amount of money marketing that movie as they would if it cost $50 million. And I agree, but I think if you look at actually where marketing costs are, it's almost all TV ads. It's like yes. 70% TV ads. Yes. And, and my, my question is, again, moving forward, is that still going to be the case? Yes. Yeah, well, it okay. is the so, only way to reach a mass audience is TV. And that is why the marketing costs for these movies, that even if you made Get Out for $5 million, you're still spending like $35 million marketing well, it. So that's, I, I think Moonlight's actually kind of a, a decent counterexample here, though, because so, you know, Blumhouse has become famous in the industry for being the the kind of, you know, the, the horror movie Moneyball studio, for lack of, for a slightly cringeworthy phrase there, but I'm going to go with it. Um, you know, Moonlight came from a distributor named AA24. Um, and distributors don't become famous too often in in film industry, but this is this one is an exception because they've stored they've sort of become a, a almost a consumer brand. Um, and the thing they've done is kind of veer away from these traditional marketing pushes with TV and lots of expensive ad buys and said they've focused very heavily on things like social media, Facebook, et cetera. And it's worked 
shockingly well. I mean, you know, Moonlight is an example. Um, they also are responsible for movies like Room, uh, Spring Breakers. Um, there's a, a long list of uh, The Lobster is another one. Again, like these are not giant hits, but they definitely play to a particular audience. Um, you know, as I was joking, sort of NPR earlier, like kind of NPR listeners, essentially. But it mm-hmm. still can be extremely profitable. And these people still go to the movies, I guess. So I... I do think maybe the distribution model is also changing to some degree, not just the production model. model, And, and that does open this up. What I guess, I, just to play devil's advocate with myself, the, the one question is, <laughs> the, the question is how many studios and, and, and uh, distributors can really function like this because there's only so much uh, attention out there, right? There are, and and plus, let's be clear about this. The NPR audience, they might go and see The Lobster and or Moonlight and or... I am not your Negro or something like this, but they're not the core movie going audience. The core movie going audience remains, you know, the teenage boys and then the teenage girls. And they're the ones you need to reach. And yeah, increasingly, those people are not watching TV either. And so at some point, you don't get any um, bang for your television marketing buck. But I do think that the big story here is just cyclical right we had a boom of what was known as indie movies back in like the 80s and early 90s and everyone was like oh my god Sundance this and independent movies that and then it all kind of withered away at some point and then like the Duplass brothers came along and suddenly like there's a new sort of flavor of indie movie but the big beating heart of Hollywood has just kept on beating in the same way that it's always been beating and it's not really changing that much. Right, but I also and I, I, mean, I agree with you but I, I just wonder as more and more of that beating heart is not beating in the United States and is, is shifting towards a global audience and, and this idea like that is where you're, you're targeting, you know, how do you then serve I, I guess my question is in a way as that if you move in that direction on one hand could that create more and more space so we just will see this hollowed out middle and we will continue to see these two tracks and whether they'll both continue that, to That's help. a really good question. As Hollywood increasingly makes movies for China rather than domestically, it used to be that you would make Star Wars for a domestic audience. It's a Western. And then the rest of the world goes, ooh, Star Wars. But you're not thinking about the rest of the world when you're making Star Wars. Now, when you're making a superhero movie, you are completely thinking about the rest of the world from day one. And if and so the domestic audience isn't served in the same way that it was served. And it does open up a little bit of a gap. Yeah, I could totally see them trying to take like the Blumhouse approach to, like teen movies. Right. Like, you know, exactly. where you don't, you know, you don't need quite as an established a star. I mean, like maybe you could experiment with different genres and see that have been sort of underserved or mm-hmm. and, and tried rom-coms or another one that maybe you try to see if you can, you know, eke out profits in a, in a smaller genre. And the other thing which I should mention is that when you have a post-star universe like we do right now, like individual movie stars don't open movies in the way that they used to. 20 or 30 years ago and they don't get paid as much as they used to with a couple of tiny you know just like a handful of exceptions um a huge amount of those massive hollywood budgets is just payroll for the big movie stars and if you can open a movie like get out with a bunch of actors who no one's ever heard of and it can make lots of money then then a huge part of your your budget just goes evaporates again and and you can make movies for less money no, agreed. Because again, the only place where you're really still seeing the power of movie stars is overseas. 
You know, th- there's a reason why, like in 2015, Arnold Schwarzenegger's in a movie here that no one's heard of, but it's a massive global hit because people globally will go see a film because Arnold Schwarzenegger's in it in the same, but they won't do that in the United States. So I just wonder if we're going to start to see this really shift to almost having like an international form of filmmaking and a domestic form of filmmaking. And we don't and know ideally, what that looks like. And, and ideally, that domestic form of filmmaking will be not just American, but will come from a bunch of different countries. Pers- yeah. And and what we are seeing on Netflix, especially, is a huge appetite for foreign-made movies and foreign-made TV shows. The Brits, it's just been a bonanza <laughs> for them. Every, every British person with a detective story they've had in their drawer for the past six years of life is just, this Score. is my moment. Anyway. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Brilliant. So that is it. Um, for the for this week's episode of Slate Money, but we do need a numbers round. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I'm like I'm looking at Felix in horror at his. Yes, laps. yes, we have a numbers round. What's your number, Jordan? My number is 100. Well, so, my number is 100 million. What's your number, Anna? I think I'm going to do 3.5 percent. Ooh, what's that? It is what Trump's tax rate would have been in 2005 if his tax plan had been in place. Oh, so if you abolish the alternative minimum tax. He would have and he would have paid three point five percent. Yeah, not bad on one hundred and thirty-eight million dollars of income or whatever. Yeah, you, you know the thing about Trump's the Trump tax story that struck me more than anything was just like you know he ended up paying about a twenty-five percent effective rate after mm-hmm. the AMT, which as people point out is more than Romney did, more than you know more than Warren Buffett does, which just goes to show that for all of his talk about how he's a <laughs> Goddamn genius about doing taxes. Not so much. No, he's not. He does not. <laughs> a normal dude. Apparently, his yeah. his accountants even suck. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Bigly. Um, Bigly. Yeah. Bigly. My number is a hundred million. Um, Jordan, do you know what geo is? J I O. No. Um, a hundred. There are. It's a service which um, launched six months ago in September 2016 and already has a hundred million users. And going from zero to 100 million in six months is kind of amazing. Um, and it's what's more, it's not just some little app you can download, but it's a entire phone network. This is the Mukesh Ambani phone network in India, which has gone from zero to 100 million in literally no time because he promised everyone in India free phone calls for life and also like free data for an introductory period, which we don't know how long it's going to last for. He has spent $25 billion building out this thing, and I've never seen a take-up like it. It's amazing. So 100 million users, that's my number. 
That's remarkable. Um, so mine is 100. So there's this energy crisis in South Australia, and Elon Musk just went on Twitter and said, okay, Tesla can fix it. In fact, you know, we'll install uh, 100 megawatts of our batteries for energy capture, for green energy. And in fact, we'll do it in 100 days or less, or it's free to Australia. <laughs> we will do this in 100 days. And then an uh, Australian politician was like, all right, cool. I just got to work out the politics back home. Like, responded <laughs> on Twitter. And then they had a phone call, and now this seems to be in the works. Like, literally, there is the, Elon Musk's 100-day money-back guarantee on Twitter has resulted in some sort of, like, a, like possibly very important advance in, in, in Australian energy policy, which is just... Twitter is like so important to everything now. <laughs> Continued rise of public policy by Twitter. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Which is mostly a bad thing, but ev- yes. every so often is, is, is glorious. Yes, this is the counterpoint to Trump ranting and ranting <laughs> about being, having his wires tapped. With two Ps. Yeah. But that, okay, so that really is it. Um, that's that's yeah, the real. end of the that show, was... folks. Thank you for um, listening to Slate Money. Thank you ever so much to Anna Shemansky, who knows things. This uh, is, I try. It's, it's, this is why we like having non-journalists on the show. Because it's true. It's, it's very useful to actually have people who know what they're talking about. Do subscribe to the show. Leave us a review on the iTunes store and write to us. The email address, as ever, is slatemoney at slate.com. And... With that, it is just left to me to thank Zach Dynastine, the producer, and the various executive producers around here who have names like Steve Lichtai and Andy Bowers and June Thomas, and I'm sure there are more. Um, check out all of the Panoply shows at panoply.fm, and we will talk to you next week on Slate Money. You know it's thriller, thriller line You're fighting for your life inside a killer, thriller tonight